Good morning. Welcome to the August edition of Black Book Talk. I'm Patricia Welch, Librarian Emeritus, and with me today are... Emma Jackson Ford, Bookwoman. And O.B. Hill, Community Historian. And our guests today are Janie Victoria Ward and Tracy L. Robinson Wood, who are the authors of Sister Resisters, Mentoring Black Women on Campus. And you know, it's hot. We are looking for the beach, many of us, and yet there are a whole bunch of folks, whole waves of folks who are looking to go back to school. Some for the first time, those of us who are at the other end of the educational ladder and the professional ladder who are looking back in joy from the stance of retirement, still remember what that first experience was. And for many of us, for many of our families, this will be the first experience for the person who's going from their family. So the mm -hmm. experience that they have is very, very important. I guess they've given us a lot of consideration. They have many ideas and solutions, and we are excited to see what they're going to tell us about how they're working to make the college experience a better one for young Black women. Welcome to Black Book Talk. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, the title of your book is Sister Resisters, what does that mean? Let me back up a little bit so that um, I can ease us into the title of the book. And I'll start by sharing with you uh, the fact that Tracy and I have been teachers and scholars, researchers in the academy for decades. And as you know, we are uh, African-American women. And very often what would happen is that students, largely black students, but sometimes also Latina students and, and other BIPOC students would find their way to our offices, whether they were our students or not. And they would often share with us stories about what was going on on the college campus. They'd tell us, about experiences they were having in class, experiences they were having in the dormitories, experiences they might be having just walking across the campus, right? And some of these stories were stories that tap into, you know, how difficult it can be to be a young Black woman on a predominantly white institution. So, and that means that sometimes these students would run up against gendered racism. So Tracy and I wanted to sort of collect these stories, collect these case studies and present them in a way that people who work on college campuses, especially predominantly white college campuses, could get a sense of what's going on for young black women. That's what we thought we were going to write about. Eventually, however, we started to think about, well, who are the people on these campuses who are working with young black women? Who are their mentors? And what can we say to mentors that could be helpful to them in order to work more effectively with 
young black women. So that's how this idea about sisters came up. Because when you're talking about mentors, you're largely talking about women. It's women faculty, women staff, women administrators. So there are a lot of white women who are in these roles. So that's where the idea of sisters came up. And then maybe Tracy can talk a little bit about what are we talking about when we say sister resistors? Emma, it's a lovely question. I appreciate your asking. So back in 1990, um, Janie and I developed a theory of resistance. And the goal was to create a model that would speak to the ways in which Black girls, teens, and women can push back against forces, um, sexism, racism, classism, uh, other isms that press down upon their lives, and to push back in a way that um, could encourage their development and their fulfillment of their goals, and to do it in a way that was um, uh, based on their own liberation and their empowerment. And it would involve certainly community, but the ability to define oneself on one's term, to have a belief in self that was certainly far greater than other people's disbelief, but to be knowledgeable about the history of gendered racism and to avoid those strategies, which we refer to as suboptimal, that although may feel good in the moment, uh, would basically move them further away from their goals. Um, so those things that can provide a sense of comfort in the moment, uh, substance use, for example. And we wanted to create a model with strategies and tools that would help black girls and women to be aware of these forces to be aware of the history, the ways in which Black people have historically had to navigate a historical terrain of racism and discrimination and to do it in a way that allows them to be empowered and to be psychologically uh, healthy. So we created a model that looked at optimal resistance and suboptimal resistance. And we want the mentors on these campuses to be able to help Black girls and women to be able to resist those forces. And when the mentor is unaware, is not awake to those forces that black girls and women have to resist, then I think it gets in the way of their effective mentoring. And so we wanted to provide tools and skills for uh, white women who are disproportionately the mentors on these predominantly white campuses to black girls, uh, to black um, young women, to help them to have the tools to do it well and to do it effectively. So that was what we are thinking about when we talk about resistance. This is um, a very, very interesting book. It's uh, six chapters of one of the most researched areas that I was not aware of. Sort of reminds me of uh, uh, W.B. Du Bois uh, saying that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And so it's sort of a carryover from that theme. And you discuss four basic steps in order to uh, have reciprocity between the mentor and mentee. Could you explain how you came about dividing this up? Yeah. So quite a few years ago, as Tracy had said, we started thinking about this idea of resistance, right? 
we have found that in talking to our colleagues, other students, when we were graduate students, and then as we became young Black female professors, Black folks are always talking about the ways in which they feel it's necessary to push back against those negative forces. So resistance has been at the heart of what we have focused on. And then back when I was doing my postdoctoral work, at that point, I was really interested in young black women, so adolescent women. And I ran around the country interviewing black girls and boys and interviewing parents of black girls and boys, asking the parents to share with me what are the messages that you pass down to your children to help to prepare them for the social and political world that they are growing up in, right? And that's where I first started to hear what I eventually called this four-step model, where parents feel it's really important for children to learn first how to see racism, by which I mean how to be able to pick up on patterns that might be happening in the environment, right? Mm -hmm. How to read the room, so to speak, and figure out um, what might be happening. The second step is naming it. Naming it is about determining what kind of oppression might be taking place. Is this racism? Is this sexism? Is this what we now call gendered racism? By which I mean that particular kind of racism that is focused specifically on black women. Whatever it is, the importance of naming it, right? That is the second step. The third step black parents talked to me about was the importance of opposing it, pushing back, right? If uh, you're in a situation and you feel as though people have an idea about you that does not align with how you think of yourself, then you know what? One thing we know about oppression is that where there is oppression, there is always resistance. So when you push back, you need to be smart and careful about the way that you push back. So opposing it can be doing it in the collective, getting together with other black folks and, and um, fighting the good fight, like the civil rights movement. But opposing it could also be internal. What do I need to change what I'm doing in order to be more effective in this situation? The last step we call replacing it. And what we mean there is that one thing black folks have learned over these many, many generations of fighting the good fight is that you can get depleted. You can get tired. And when you get tired, sometimes you don't make the best kinds of choices. So today, when we think about black college women, we talk a lot about self-care. We talk about taking care of your mental health. And that can, that of course, you know, could include relaxation and all that stuff, but it also could include 
reading about Black folks, reading our history, sharing these stories of resistance with one another as a way to build one another up because that gives us the energy to fight another day. So those are the four steps to our model of resistance. The trick is, how do you teach white women those four steps? And how do you teach white women to respect it in black women and also to think about how it might relate to their own lives? Well, you know, Janie, that was the question that was coming to my mind as I was listening to you. By the time a black mm-hmm. woman gets to be college age or even before, they have had a mm-hmm. lifetime of mm-hmm. working within, trying to learn how to work within this white system. Let's say this is a four-year college. How are you mm-hmm. going to get a white woman who might have had little or no interaction with any Black people, or if she's had it with Black people, it might have been colleagues, but not just, let's just say you're regular around the way, just young Black girl. How in four years or less are you going to get this woman together to be a valuable mentor to this young Black woman? Um, it's a great question. I didn't know if you wanted Janie to respond to that. Um, and, and we are ahead, mindful. We, we think it's a big ask. I, I think we feel hopeful that, that white women can and need to do this work. We have encountered white women who realize they don't have the skills and the tools and are open to learning. We also realize that there are going to be some white women mentors who are resistant to the model of resistance. And so we we understand that. And we want, you know, Janie and I were just talking about that today in terms of, you know, how do we educate young black women to know when they're in situations with mentors who are not serving them optimally, who um, perhaps are not interested in learning about their history or listening to them speak about their experiences, reading discrimination in the classroom or as they're walking across campus. And so we, we want, Uh, Black women to be able to say, I need this relationship, even though I'm mindful that this woman is perhaps lacking patience or seems to have a different set of um, interest in talking to other people, e.g. white kids or white young women, and not me. I see a difference. And yet, is there still a place and a space in that relationship where the Black woman can benefit? And are there other mentors on campus outside of camp who could benefit that young woman as well. We are, I think we are aware that learning resistance is a very big call for a lot of white women because we are asking them to interrogate their own position to in their own proximity to racism. You know, I say that the reign of racism falls on every house in the land. And so what does it mean for us to ask white women to think about what have you been taught about? yourself as a white person? What have you been talking about black women? You know, how? what are the losses that you have accrued as a function of uh, racism in your life? And um, how might you benefit in your life from relationships with women of color, with black women? And so we want black women to certainly be, they will need to be in relationship oftentimes with white women as, as mentors, but we, we are aware that um, not everybody is going to perhaps have the interest um, to be able to do this work, but we have encountered white women who are. 
We also realize that white women will, their relationships with other white people will shift and change when they begin to call out racism among their white colleagues, which is what we are wanting them to be able to do, to basically be able to say, I, I hear racism here, and this is inconsistent with our mission as an institution of higher education. It's inconsistent with what the federal laws are regarding discrimination. And so that will change relationships. And that is difficult for white women who are taught to oftentimes be nice, get along. And when you call out racism, that goes against oftentimes their socialization as, as women. So replenishing, this work is very exhausting. Replenishing means that we are aware that it is frustrating it's exhausting to have to constantly be in a position of calling out racism or refueling yourself from um, yet another racist encounter in the classroom, being mistaken for the cleaning lady, having people question, so how did you get into this particular program? Or are you here because of affirmative action? These are the kinds of experiences that young black women will, will have on, on campus. We call that microaggressions. And so we want young black women to know where, where are your spaces of safety and support for you to know that you can get refueled, where you can be taught that this is not your fault. And to, to know that there are people who can listen to you and honor the struggle that you're, you're having. Um, that is the replenishing. So it sounds like the targeted audience is young Black women going off to college or who are college students. But it also sounds like white professors, white people who work at the universities and colleges are your audience. How do you propose to get the book into the hands of the people who need to be reading it? Well, we we hope that by having by doing these kinds of interviews, by going out to colleges and talking about this issue, we'll get the word out. You know, what often happens, I think a lot of people don't quite understand that on college campuses. When we talk about mentoring, what the way that mentoring works is really just a little bit haphazard. It depends mm -hmm. on the department you're in. It depends on the discipline you're in. It depends on the college that you're in. There are some schools that have uh, fancy formal mentoring programs, right? And they may call us to come in and talk to them about how do you enhance that existing program? But then there are other colleges that we know of that their mentoring program is basically volunteer. They recognize that their students could use a mentor and they just put out a call. Anybody who wants to work with students, please get in touch with the Dean's office. Because there are different ways in which mentors are called to service. It means that there are different kinds of programs that call for different kinds of interventions. As Tracy had said, there are some white women out there who have already started the work. They may be doing some diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops and taking classes and are reading 
really great books about race in America, books about women and gender. And then there are other folks who are like clueless, right? So the interventions really are dependent on where the adults in the institution are. I would also add, Emma, I think it's a lovely question in terms of how do you get this book into the hands of, of white people? You know, every institution of higher education has a DEI uh, mission. So a diversity, equity, and inclusion mission. You know, there are brochures that are sent out, oftentimes with very attractive brown people on the cover. Um, and sometimes students will get to these campuses and they'll look around and they'll say, well, where are the brown and, you know, we're the brown and black people. And so I think more and more families need to be asking institutions, what is the evidence of your commitment to DEI, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion? Because parents send their children off to school wanting them to have a good academic education, also wanting to trust that their children are in good hands and that there are competent adults who are there in place to um, listen to their young people talk about these developmental pains and to be able to offer some sound wisdom as opposed to, oh, well, don't let that experience that you had in class, don't worry about it, or, you know, just focus on your books as opposed to well-informed responses that reflect literature and research and what Janie and I have been um, talking about. So we think that administrators people who are in positions of authority can use their power to basically say, how do we want to transform the culture on this campus? We also have to start thinking, what is the benefit to white kids for DEI efforts? Because if we continue to just focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, benefiting black and brown kids, we're not preparing white kids to be global citizens. In a world where increasingly there are going to be fewer white people and we saw, for example, the biracial, uh, multiracial population from 2010 to 2020 increased by 300%. Disproportionately, those parents are white. And so people need to have tools and abilities to speak confidently and competently about race and racism. And saying, I just get so overwhelmed, or I just don't know what to do, or I don't know what to say, that kind of response is anemic and, and it's not necessary. We can do better and we must do better. And so I think that institutions more and more need to show evidence of doing better. You know, I'm sitting here listening to this and heaven knows I was under uh, undergrad generations ago. And yet what I'm hearing seems so familiar to the experience that I had. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, did you two have good mentor experiences when you were in college? Is that why you decided to do the book or just to do the work? It was the exact opposite. We had non-existent mentoring experiences when we were coming along. In the beginning of the book, in one of the first chapters, we each write about our mentoring experiences in our undergraduate colleges. My situation was one in which I was uh, at NYU Film School, and I think there were a, a, there was a grand total of like five black students, period, across all of the programs mm. in the 1970s, and there were um, no black faculty within um, the field that I was in. 
And as a result, I was um, I didn't have anybody to turn to uh, to talk about pre-professional preparation. Mm -hmm. I was on my own and eventually I decided to change fields and I went into psychology. But one of the things that happened, and then, you know, and Tracy has, do Tracy, do you want to tell your story now? Right. I, I, I didn't have uh, mentoring. I had people who were kindly toward me, but that's different from a dedicated and declared mentoring relationship where the mentee knows this is my mentor, the roles of the mentor, and that this is a space where someone is able to provide me with some guidance, some warnings, um, some wisdom. You know, um, and and this is also a place where I, I can be vulnerable and trust that people care about me. So uh, I did not have a dedicated mentor. And I'm, I was like Janie. It was a very few black students at my institution. And I went through my four years of undergraduate without a black faculty member, even though I was in Southern California. And so I went to college in the late 70s, early 80s. And so this was quite a time when black people and and um, and, and Latinx people and Asians and, and, and white women were talking about rights and the ways in which they wanted their voices heard. And so it's, it's I was in a state where there was, there were people of color. And I asked my university professor, why weren't there more, why weren't there black faculty? Chicano faculty, and and he responded that people who apply for jobs there who were, you know, um, minorities were applying for maintenance positions. I hate to cut you off, but I think we might be down to about sixty seconds or less. Yes, so obviously yes. you're going to have to come back. Oh, we but, will. <laughs> because this is also for me. But I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure who it is whose mother died when they were eighteen. I'm not sure if it's you, Jenny. That was me. Okay, but it sounds like you had one of the best mentors in the world. I love what you said. You said, my mother was the original sister resistor, having taught me early that I would have to run twice as hard, fast to go half as far. Her words clarified my past. Her edict was to run long and hard, not to win the accolades of a discriminatory society, but to embrace the goodness in life and to expect greatness from myself. I love that line. That is um, what we want. That that's what we want for our young women. Yes. And, our, and, and you two are doing so much. Thank you so much for your book. You don't have to come back <laughs> and tell us some more. But thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We look forward to talking to you again for the next edition of Black Book Talk. Enjoy this summer. Bye bye. From where?